Hello everybody and welcome to the Alien vs Predator Galaxy podcast, the original Alien and Predator podcast. This is Aaron Percival aka Corporal Hicks and joining me are usual partners in crime. Adam Zeller aka Ridgetop. Eric Adams aka Xenomorphine. And joining us is a voice we've heard recently because we've recorded something that's not yet been posted and probably won't be posted by the time this one's out either because I'm very slow editing those ones. But he's joining us again for the first time on the podcast for many, many moons. I can't remember the last time. 2017, since before Covenant, I think. You were on the Covenant podcast, weren't you? Yeah, that's what I mean. Uh, Yeah, one of the trailer podcasts. No, you, you weren't on the film one. I don't recall, actually. Okay. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, go ahead and introduce yourself. I'm David, a.k.a. unpronounceable nickname. On the forums, I'm Omegamorph, one of the moderators. It's not that unpronounceable. <laughs> I remember one time, like, I was at this live event with Alec Gillis on YouTube promoting How Big and Down, and he couldn't pronounce that at all. And <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's Omega and Morph. <laughs> It was like, I'm big, I'm big, I'm Maybe they just got used to seeing those two together. Yeah. <laughs> and this is episode 140 of mm. the podcast. So uh, we're getting there. We're near 150. We'll hit 150 by the end of the year, especially because we're already on, on way to actually doing a lot more than last year. I know, right? How many have we recorded this month so far? Is this the. No, this will be our second this month, third of the year. Because the. Because the you're thinking of the commentary here. Yeah. But I've I've already reached out to far more people for interviews than I did last year. So we should be on track to actually get some stuff done this year. And I'm not as depressed as last year so far. So we're doing Yay. well. We're doing well. I'll, I'll be more motivated <laughs> to get crossed, things edited. We're all a little less depressed this year than we have been for the last two. Mate, you know what? I was so productive in 2000. You mean 2020? 2020, yeah. I was on fire getting stuff done. <laughs> you were you were very productive that could be years two years ago. Oh. That was the last time I felt good. Well, you know what? It was a shit year for everybody. But for me, sat at my PC getting stuff done, it was a good year. Yeah. And then 2021, we were like, okay, I think we're getting a little sick of this now. So, well, 2021 was when work fucking smacked me in the face. That's why I was a morbid bastard that what year. You're swearing, Aaron. Oh, yeah. Sorry. I've- Look, I've been to, for everybody, every one person with this, been two people, two people that have complained about my swearing over the times we've done this. And I've had lots of reassurances that it's okay. Look, I'm British. British and Australians swear every other word and it's fine. Yeah. If you can reply to this with like hashtag team profanity or hashtag (laughs) support, either way, we'll know what you like. According to studies, swearing is a sign of intelligence, so I will take it, especially with how stupid I I am actually getting in my older age. So, you know what? It's a nice, nice counterbalance. But on topic, we are finally, finally doing the episode that we have been asked so many goddamn times to do. I was going to say, look at Adam's wonderful copy of that trade back, but I don't think any of us have the original trade. <laughs> yeah, no, this this is the digital version on iPad because somehow I lost my original trade, unfortunately. And I was reading it in probably just as hard to get hold of these days. Omnibus Volume 6. I gave away my trade many years ago um, when I had the Great Purge. Where I'd have fallen out with the series. We're talking many, many years ago, just after AVP one. You had a falling out with the series? Yeah, he almost he almost closed the website. No, that was that was darkness. Back then I used to work on 
AVP World was my website. Then it, it, I helped out at Absolute AVP. Then I gave up doing that because I was sick of HTML and coding to work on AVP News. And then they left me to it, completely pissed off. And then at some point, it was when the Ain't It Cool News review of AVP 2 script came out. I went, fuck it, I'm done. And uh, mm-hmm. gave away a load of stuff. So I've, I've lost... Uh, my copy has gone to the winds, but we have talked about Alien Apocalypse, the Destroying Angels, offhandedly a lot throughout the years that we've been doing this, but we've never actually sat down to do an episode of it. And I know a lot of people have been asking us, come on, finally do that fucking episode on Destroying Angels, especially because of how highly Adam and I have always spoken about it. And I'm actually going to lead us off on this one before inevitably everybody else goes on a downer because that's just the way. Hi, Rick, I'm looking at you. I'm looking at you. Eric doesn't like anything. That's just the way these things go. So I'm going to start us off on a high note because I fucking love Aliens Apocalypse Destroying Angels. It has a lot of sentimentality for me as well because this comic is the reason, one of two reasons that I am as into just absorbing anything to do with, with Alien as I am. The only other time I've... Okay, let's start a different way. So flashback to before Amazon is this huge monolith of, of retailers and I'm a poor boy with no bank account. With a poor uh, no family. No job. <laughs> Sounds like me now. Okay, now, now we're flashing back to earlier this year where Eric was happy that he just had food. So come on, let's not go that way. <laughs> Still am. <laughs> And I was just happy about new toys I got for Christmas. But no, back when I was a kid, this comic was like a grail to me. I was always, one of the reasons I've always been as interested in the franchises I have and the expanded universe was solely to find out more about the space jockeys. So when I found out about this comic, I, I would be checking all my libraries because this <laughs> that's where I read a lot of the comics when I was younger. I think the first full comic I ever read was uh, Aliens vs. Superman from a library. Alien Stronghold from a library. Batman versus Aliens from a library. Again, because I'm a poor kid and I can't afford to buy my own comics and I'm just relying on everything else. You know, I didn't have a CBR reader or these dodgy websites that I could go to to read comics. And Amazon wasn't this monolith where when I did actually have a tenor, I, I could beg the parents to go and buy me a copy. It took me a long time, a lot of tracking this down to find this comic and I, I did it solely because it was the one that everybody used to talk about on the mail groups alt.cult.movies.alien and game gossip you know the the for the forum arm of avp news which was my haunt back in the 22 years ago of early online fandom i was so desperate to track this comic down and i'm fairly sure i did eventually get it on avp news uh, on amazon sorry um i believe my dad finally was able to get me avp prey and this comic you know my two ones that i was desperate to find probably because of the ouch stuff i mean i hate it now but at the time i was immensely curious so that whole curiosity around learning more about what is just background stuff in the movies and this comic is one of the reasons i'm so into the expanded universe and just absorbing everything but it's also the comic that sort of formed a lot of the things i love about alien i mean sure all the lovecraftian stuff is there in the films as well but this comic just fucking amplifies it yeah and a lot, you know, the way the characters and the story and, and just the narratives presented is very Lovecraftian. And this whole angle of the alien as this 
ancient gods kind of thing you know this this cyclic force of cosmic destruction is the way i view the aliens and it's all thanks to this comic basically so there's a lot of sentimentality going off here and a lot of forming of my tastes coming from this comic so i love it it means a lot to me i I don't think i ranked it as number one when i did my top 10 list many many years ago and probably do a revisit for a top 10 list actually but i think it was like top three it must have been number three i love the comic i just do I don't think it's perfect. I don't think I call it a 10 out of 10, but it's up there. You know, probably a 9 out of 10 for me. 9 out of 10 for you. Oh, you know what? I didn't even mention fucking Doug Wheatley. Perfect artwork. We'll talk about it further later, but yeah. It's not just a, a brilliant narrative and, and themes and everything going off in it and sentimentality for me. Doug Wheatley is a fucking god when it comes to artwork, and this comic is easily one of the best that Aliens looks as well. Go on then, Adam. You go next. So I hadn't read this in a while, but I remember this being one of my favorites as well. And rereading it now after quite a few years, I still really like the comic. For me, it's probably about an eight. I'll just say right off the bat, rather than a nine. There's some, I think it has some pacing issues as well as it's pretty exposition heavy in the beginning. But overall, the artwork is just so good. It's it's interesting. Wheatley only really did this and Thicker Than Blood, the last AVP one. But the the artwork is phenomenal in this, especially in relation to the Giger aesthetic in terms of the space jockey locations that the characters visit in this. Most of the characters I thought were pretty forgettable, the human characters, but I just feel like the setting in this was quite strong. And you had this interesting element with this science worshiping group or something is kind of how I took it. The Galho God, is that how they pronounced it or something? I went G Hole God. G Hole God. I thought Gil Good or yeah, it's not. However you say that. It almost feels like Behold God. Yeah. It kind of reminded me of like the, the South Park episode with all these atheist science groups or something. It was like a <laughs> science religion or something. But there were a lot of interesting parallels with this and Prometheus, you know, and this is an interesting read. Now us being in a post Prometheus part of the franchise, going back and seeing this alternate or this original take on the space jockeys. And I, I do love what they did with that. Aaron, I know when we reviewed the um, Marvel comic, I told you I didn't like the whole cleansing fire idea of the aliens. And you were like, well, you liked it better in this comic. And reading it now, yeah, this comic handles that concept better, I think. It's, it's an interpretation of this guy who's been there on the, this planet, but it's not so bluntly putting your face, you know? I think it's just because of the presence of the black goo that makes you not like it. Maybe, that maybe that's it. But... I do really enjoy this comic. I feel like even with the shortcomings of some of the pacing issues, some of the heavy exposition dumps at, at times, I still feel like the artwork, this, this is a very stylistically strong comic. One of the strongest in the Alien series. Even the designs of the aliens them, themselves, we'll get into that a bit, but I love the design aesthetic of the xenomorphs in this. But again, overall, it, it has a couple issues, but not enough to hold it back for me that it's still a great Aliens comic, one of the better ones. So for me, I'm going to go with an eight. Go on, Eric. Oh, this absolute trash tier thing. No, I would come over to your house and fucking sort you out and play Alien Isolation while I was there. <laughs> it's not without flaws, but it is definitely one of the better crafted ones it is very well crafted especially in the artwork as you said doug wheatley if you liked his artwork in thicker than blood i think when we reviewed it i think aj was here where they were kind of split on the story but we all universally praised the artwork this is doug wheatley's stuff before 
thicker than blood. And to this day, I would say maybe Den Bouvet and this guy are the only people I remember doing... You can look at this and you can say, these are the artists in comic form who's done justice to Giga's set design. Excuse me, Killian Plunkett. I don't remember. Labyrinth. Uh, maybe. I, th- I think that was very heavily stylized, wasn't it? Not really, no. I'd have to go back and look. I thought the humans were a little stylized in that one, but the Giga is that. Yeah, I'm, I might be thinking. It's been so many years, see? If I remember rightly, you weren't keen on the mad scientist aspect of that comic. But if you go back and look at the artwork... I'll, I'll go back, yeah. But but in terms of the set design, like the Giga look, this captures the essence of that beautifully. It does need to be said, story-wise, it is really weird to read this. Because I, I read this a few years ago. This Recently, I went back to read it in the first time years. It is really weird to read this post-Covenant because there are definitely some similarities right down to, without spoiling it, but... But spoil it. If people are listening to this yeah, that true. haven't yeah. read the comic, then... Right down to a, a decapitated android who gets re- reattached, not in the same way as David, but bad things happen. Some, what would have been called back in those days, space jockey, we'd now call engineer, ruins, literally being called a laboratory, a guy who's been studying the aliens for so long, having this prophetic message, blah, blah, blah. The, the phrase necropolis as well. Yes, good point. There are a, so many similarities you do have to wonder that it did at least one person on Covenant read this and get inspired, influenced. There is definitely a weird sort of Covenant vibe to it before Covenant was a thing. It is very weird. As Adam says, human characters aren't really memorable, but I think in terms of dealing with similar themes as Covenant, this did it better than Covenant, I think it's fair to say. Like This left a better impression on me than watching Covenant. And it's dealing with very similar issues. Interestingly, what's recently come up in the forums, because people have been doing articles on it about, oh, Marvel's got this new direction. The aliens are this cleansing fire. That's a cyclical thing. For, and we will be saying, no, it wasn't. Dark Horse did this before. This is the one that really explores that narrative angle there's always going to be problems with that because aliens can't create their own starship and the whole story of this one literally revolves around they're stuck on this world they can't get out so it kind of like collapses a bit if you scrutinize it too much but in terms of the story how it's presented it does it really nicely so it's as Aaron said this isn't a 10 out of 10 for me but it's definitely it's a comic in an alien comic which is that rarity which, where it has a cinematic tone rather than a very superficial pulse rifles pew 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 type it does that as well but it feels more they made an effort to be cinematic they they tried to bring that vibe back to it it's not horrific but there is a cinematic tone there which i really appreciate they use the alien license to its strengths in that respect you could imagine this being adapted for a film with pretty much minimal fuss and yeah it's not flawless but it is one of the more well-crafted comics david what's your take i do i do agree with most of the things that have been said so far especially that you know it's a very cinematic looking comic and with a few adjustments it could very well fit into you know the main movie timeline you know barring the prequel stuff 
What I found most interesting when rereading the comic is that it seems to be a cross between At the Mountain's Madness and, you know, in Lovecraft's lore. And of course, you know, Alien, Prometheus, you know, they owe a great debt to those short stories. But what I found most interesting is that, you know, the main villain, if you want to call him a villain, Dr. Keto, very much reminds me of Dr. Reinhardt from The Black Hole. Have you guys seen Black Hole? You know, 1979 Disney movie. I've seen it once and only recently and do not understand why my dad never, ever showed me that film. Because (laughs) it was was fucking brilliant. It was one of my horror films from my childhood. Bot movies revolve around this missing scientist. And bot movies have this scientist turning his crew into something else. In the Black Hole, Reinhardt turns his crew into kind of slave robot cyborgs, whatever they are. And in this one, Keetalt, you know, says that he reincarnates his crew into aliens, which is also a very interesting thing. You know, he's so deep into worshipping these things that he's completely lost the kind of basic logic that will tell you, no, <laughs> this is this is not something that you should do. I also agree with, you know, the perfect rendition of the aesthetic, but on, you know, the alien side and on the human side, there's some panels that look straight out of a Ron Cobb or Chris Foss or a Moebius drawing. And, you know, they, they look very, very cool. Many people over the years, because, you know, I've been talking about this comic over the years on the forums as well, you know, they have this kind of grudge against the space jockey in this because it looks, it doesn't look biomechanical and, it, you know, it has this kind of old whiskey hair looking wispy hair. He looks like he's been to the pub. He's massive. Yeah, but... Fleshy. In keeping with the fact that, you know, this is, you know, kind of very Lovecraftian. I don't mind that, actually, because many Lovecraft creatures are very, you know, bloated, kind of ugly, lumpy, gangly looking, things like that. So I don't mind that too much. I do think it could have been rendered better, but I don't mind it at all, actually. And I also very much love how the finale, you know, kind of explodes. It's a classic thing, you know, when, you know, your entire setting collapses in the third act. And of course, you had the space jokey alien, which is, <laughs> it's insane. I love that thing and how it is, it is implemented into the plot. You guys are right. There's many f- similarities with Prometheus and Covenant, you know, the star map leading them to, you know, the outpost. The fact that the last remaining jockey is dormant, you know, in cryosleep, and then it's infected with uh, one of the alien creatures. And then, of course, that creature emerges. But in this comic, the creature is actually, you know, part of the explosive finale, which I think is a more interesting direction. I think in Prometheus, they had a similar thing before the rewrites, the Ultramorph. Yeah, the uh, the Ultramorph. That was the pre-Prometheus version of the script. Yeah, Alien, was it Alien Engineers? Alien Engineers, Alien Zero One, Alien Genesis, Alien Zero. Yeah, they had a multitude of titles for it. But pretty much throughout, throughout development before Lindelof got his hands on it, yeah, that was the big finale. Mm-hmm. And last but not least, I like the kind of impending apocalypse vibe and tone that it sets up you know it's kind of like the ending of invasion of the body snatches you know they're coming they're coming the end is near you know that's the kind of way i want alien type storytelling to to go 
And one thing I find puzzling still, I don't mind it, but I just find it, you know, kind of puzzling is the owl because they decided for some reason that an owl should be part of the story. But I do kind of like that, you know, it's this kind of detective for them and it's kind of this ally and, you know, kind of servant from a gacha game <laughs> doing, you know, appropriate things at the appropriate moment. I've got weird memories that the owl was a synthetic, but when I reread this, it's not. It's just an owl. So I don't know where I got that idea from. I don't think we've really seen many synthetic pets, have there? Was there no, was Maggie from sure Shaw? This was a yeah, specimen. It's not. So it just made no. I thought, oh, well, I'm waiting for the reveal. This owl is a synthetic, but I think Maggie was just the an first, owl. Was the first synthetic animal in the alien universe, wasn't she? I don't remember any other ones than Maggie. Yeah. And you guys also, you know, mentioned how the characters are not that memorable. And I do agree that, you know, there's not much of a development for many of them, save for Keto. But I don't mind that because, you know, it's a highly conceptual story. It's very story driven. So, you know, it's like the writer had this great idea for what the alien is about. And he only had so many pages to tell it. So I think they did the best they could, given what they, they were given, you know, budget-wise and space-wise. Because I imagine, you know, they couldn't make it longer or something like that because of schedules or spaces that they were allowed, you know, things like that. And and it's a bit of a trend. And and, and to this day, when, it, when, you know, when Dark Horse lost, it was that they would only do four-issue series. I don't know why that limit was there. But yeah, it was it was pretty much this seemingly dark horse imposed limit of four issues per mm-hmm. main series. I don't know what the reasoning is. So yeah, you're quite right. There there was limited space from a writing point of view for for Mark Schultz to do it. Oh yeah, Mark Schultz wrote this by the way. We haven't said that once. The writer of this series is yeah, which I imagine is also the reason for you know some of the plot points being you know kind of either resolved in a questionable way or not resolved at all. Like, well, and Yutani plants these eggs inside the ship and we never quite find out why they did it. But that's also enjoyable because, you know, another element that I very much enjoy about this comic is that it kind of, you know, lampshades on the rivalry between companies, you know, this kind of espionage lampshading that I very much enjoyed. And also, you know, Baal at a certain point gets, you know, corrupted by the other androids programming and you know he he does say you know keep an eye on me (laughs) and they don't (laughs) you know and you know i figure that in a longer comic with that more spaced out pacing they could have resolved that another way how would you go score wise then out of 10 i'm not very fond of number ratings because i don't feel like they express your feelings about something but if i were forced to which i am now i guess <laughs> i'd say a solid 8.5 maybe 9 okay eric i don't think you gave yours either what would yours be on the number scale i'm tempted to say 8 out of 10 but because the characters aren't really memory it's just it's more of an, a pure narrative focused thing i think that kind of like drives me down more to a 7 out of 10 you see with the, with all the mention of you know the character stuff I tend to find comics in general are very story-driven. I mean, at least Dark Horse's stuff tends to be very story-driven. And I don't find that to be a negative. A lot of the focus is on narrative and making the bad guys interesting, which I find very appealing and it works for me. And it doesn't 
doesn't really drive down I any scores as far like as I'm concerned. You can have a good balance. And one I would use as an example is Dead Orbit and Dust to Dust. Those were also very conceptually story driven, but also had really strong characters. And I do feel there just wasn't enough context here for the characters and their their backgrounds and such at least at least some of the main ones they were okay it's not like they were bad but dark horse has done better in the years since i think with dust to dust being a prime example it's funny you say that because i mean dead orbit i think i criticized the the characters in that i was like there's nothing here this is an a to b and it's brilliant but yeah that you would bring maybe, it more, a maybe more so dust to dust than it's been a while since i read that one too i mean there's nothing which precludes someone from really like fleshing out characters and doing their narrative yeah. focus. That's what I'm saying. To be like a 10 out of 10, something for me has to be absolutely perfect, flawless. Nine out of 10, not flawless, but it's like as good as it could be. Um, so I'm kind of like in that seven to eight out of 10. It's really the artwork that kind yeah. of like veers. And the concepts. It's, it's really conceptually driven. And where it really shines is the stuff we hadn't seen a lot of at that point, which is the Giger aesthetic and the space jockeys. Mm -hmm. Like those environments that are in this are super well done. When you when you see this big underground space jockey facility, those are very well rendered, very well realized. And we actually do see a space jockey that's not just the fossil. I wasn't too fond of the scraggly hair. Oh yeah, the early ones. Overall, it, it was kind of a cool design for the space jockey and it still kept it mysterious. Like it didn't really give away too much about them, but it showed more of their underground city here essentially and talked about the fall of their race a little bit more while still keeping it mysterious. Well, let's, let's dive straight into the space jockeys then. Well, this, this comics interpretation of the space jockeys and their history with the aliens and their history with the galaxy and stuff. Like I said, you know, it was my desire to learn more about the space jockeys that drove me into this comic, that made me obsessed with finally finding this comic. Because up until this point, you know, we'd had we'd had the films, we'd had the <laughs> floating space jockey from book one. I think it was entirely absent from book two. We had the very little end of book three where it's talking about them using the aliens to terraform Earth. And then that entire plot point is destroyed with a nuclear weapon, literally. No. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but there's that little miniature story that deals with the. That's line. what I mean. That's what I'm saying. The, the, this was when it was literally destroyed with a with a yeah a nuclear device, and that was the end of the space jockey in the in the expanded universe. You know, they were in they were in the point and click game comic book adventure. They were in a oh, comic yeah. book adventure in what would that have been about ninety five something like that. I also think there's an Easter egg in Aliens Colonial Marines with a space jockey's ship. Oh, kind of reactivating when you shoot something. Yeah, you shoot the space jockey, and it's a uh... that's recent history, though. That is, I mean, up until oh, okay. up until this comic came out, there was only those things oh, okay. that I'd brought up, which was. I think you mean a depiction where it's not just a dead fossil, where it's yeah, actually a living a one. Living yeah, space jockey. Right? No, I just mean in general. I mean in general, the 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 space jockey was entirely dropped from stories, from comics, from games, and well, of course they were dropped from the yeah, <laughs> the book adaptations of the comics entirely omitted it from book three. You know, it it was it was included in book one, but that whole terraforming angle was just removed from Perry's adaptation of, of Female War. It was it was gone. There was nothing in there, and until this comic came out in ninety nine. 
99 yeah. yeah 99 we had we'd had decades of no space jockeys and this was the first time we actually got to dig into them a little bit and it was brilliant i love the physical interpretation of the jockey in this yes it looks kind of funny with the the wispy stuff but this dude's been chilling and vegging out in a chair for three mil three billion billion years changes yeah the the story acknowledges they're saying this they they actually make a big deal in the story they say imagine a technology that can preserve life for you know say billions of years And at that point you're thinking yeah it's gonna look different it's still a bit too like an octopus but it's the story acknowledges that, whereas it doesn't acknowledge the actual space jockey alien just killing other aliens. That didn't work for me. Yeah, this is exactly the reason I think the space jockey alien kind of grows so fast, one, and two, attacks the other aliens. It might be some side effect from, you know, the... Yeah, it's, it's never really explained. The just- cry- cryosleep technology. One thing I do find, you know, interesting is that, you know, they do show a living jockey living so to speak but they never once show the full body of a jockey in the comic they only show what we were shown in alien and then they covered that what we have seen in alien with flesh but we never see like legs or you know well, we see legs at the end of the aliens leg. one but he's in a suit so no i mean in this comic oh in this comic yeah i don't think they wanted to because let's be fair people do tend to criticize as much as book one is also very much loved People do tend to criticize the appearance yeah. of the space the, jockey. The jockey did not look very good in that one, yeah. So I, I bet that was, you know, no, it's a very fair point, David, but I bet that was them hedging their bets, being like, let's avoid it. We're not going to commit to um, yeah, fully it, interpreting. Yeah, you know, how does this thing walk? Ooh, does, does it, it move? Does it float? Does it, you know, <laughs> fuck if I know. <laughs> do you guys remember what you thought of this interpretation pre-Prometheus? I thought it was really interesting. I just didn't like the hair. (laughs) But other than the hair, I thought it looked pretty good. Now, there's been a lot of really good fan art as well of the Space Jockey interpretations. But as far as what we've seen officially, this is one of the better ones, I think. Maybe the best one officially. I can't think of a better depiction of them that I've seen in, in the other comics. I mean, even narratively as well, you know, this whole take on them as this three billion year old civilization that the aliens, you know, wiped out. Yeah. Just that the whole the whole presentation narratively and, and visually speaking in this comic before we were corrupted by Prometheus. <laughs> do we remember the reaction to the whole package? Yeah, that's what drew me to the comic was not just the space jockeys, but the gigares element of the environments we saw. I don't even know if they could do that now in the newer stuff. It could if they wanted. Seeing, well, there's stuff with the Giger estate that's become a bit more, and anyway. Oh, legal, why, yeah. So seeing those environments so well realized here, it's like what I wanted to see in Covenant from an engineer city. Yeah. And there's also some Prometheus elements here too. They find a stone tablet on Earth that shows that the aliens were on Earth at some point. That's yeah, with very star Prometheus. Map as well. That's yeah. another thing. I thought that's like sure finding yeah. it was yeah. To be fair, I think the star map they actually found on the ship on the first derelict. Oh, okay. And that's another thing. We get to see another derelict ship of a different design that looks mm. interesting, but still the same kind of design language that we have from the original derelict. I will say the human ships were not as well realized on the interiors of those, but I guess, you know, they have a budget and they're going to go with the Giger stuff because that's what we're into anyway. So 
but I do kind of wish we saw a bit more of the human ship well realized, especially when they're in like the cargo bay. It just looks kind of like land, I thought. I know it's just a cargo bay, but I'm like, really? Like compared to the Giger environments here, but I guess, you know, they were picking what they could do. But I also want to talk about the um, xenomorph aesthetic. Come on, don't don't skip topic yet. Other people have got oh, to okay, talk okay. space We still got some space jockey to go. All right. Like narrative wise, what did you think of what they did with the space jockey? Yeah, I mean, there was always the fan theory of did the space jockeys create the xenomorphs? And this seems to imply that they did not, that this was something they they were a spacefaring civilization that came across this and this destroyed them. But I guess you could also interpret that they created them, but it destroyed them. I don't know. But it seems I kind of took it as they came across the aliens. Mm -hmm. I don't think don't think destroying angels puts across that they created them all. Yeah, it leaves it ambiguous. They just—it just says that's the cause of their demise somehow. There's a certain point when Keitel says the aliens, the angels, have been sent by something or someone, and he doesn't say what. You know, that's that's a nice moment. Yeah, because he said, "No, forget that." <laughs> you can tell that it was—they were saving it for another story. But well, that's the thing here as well. So you wouldn't know it from reading any of the short, uh, from the way we've read it, but there's a reason I love to go back and find the bug hunt pages of the singles, you know, the letter columns, the, the notes from the editors and stuff like that. And it sounds like this was very much the start of its own thing. You know, it was Aliens Apocalypse, the Destroying right. Angels. Yeah. The implication from the editors at the in the in the bug hunt pages at the back. And shout out to Lee As Asbury from the Wayland Utani Bulletin for kindly providing me those pictures of, of the bug hunt pages so I could read them because that wasn't something I was aware of. I I didn't know that this was intended to possibly be its own thing. So there would have been aliens apocalypse something else. Yes, in theory, because this this comic was the next comic after this. Xenogenesis. was Xenogenesis, and the Xenogenesis event killed the Alien, Predator, and AVP comics for about 10 years. Literally a decade, yeah. This was the end of the 90s Dark Horse era. This is the tail end, and it was Xenogenesis. And I have right. reached out to um, Mark Schultz, actually, hopefully to have him on the show, and that would be something I'd be quite curious to find out more from him if, if he accepts the invitation. We'll see. They did have a mini-sequel, though, Once in a Lifetime, right? Mm -hmm. That was in Dark Horse Presents something that came out around about this, the same time as... So probably not as widely read as this one. But it is in um, it is in volume six. So uh, anybody who picked up those volumes, and anybody who picks up, I think it's in the next one. I think it's in volume three of Marvel's um, complete original years thing. So it'll be in there as well. Is the Destroying Angels going to be released in that third one too? Mm -hmm. That'll be good to see that, get another release. Yeah, I definitely, I definitely need a physical copy. So, David, what did you, again, casting your mind back to pre-Prometheus, you know, what was your reaction to this interpretation? My mind pre-Prometheus now. That's, that's a the good old thing days. to do. <laughs> anyway, I agree with what's been said so far, as in it's my favorite interpretation that we have been given by official sources of the space jockey. I especially like that it didn't go the obvious route of the space jockey created the alien, which I was never really fond of. And I do like that it kind of portrays these uh, creatures as, you know, just another specifying civilization. Who knows what they were like? Maybe they were, you know, non-violent at all, you know? She's very much respectful of the original Tanaban and 
kind of concept for the space jockey because he, he said that they were herbivorous <laughs> at a certain point he specified that they were herbivorous for some reason and that, that they were probably non-violent and again i like that we never really see much of an interaction with them it's it's kind of like that movie quatermass and the pet you know we never see them interacting with the cactus, you know, the aliens interacting with the cactus, we just see a dead ones. And in this case, we see a dormant one. And it kind of keeps the mystery alive. You're always on the edge, you know, is he going to wake up? Is he going to, you know, open an eye or something like that? And if he doesn't, for the whole comic, he just dies at the end because, you know, the, the alien emerges from it. Off screen. Off screen also you never actually see it yeah yeah which is again a very interesting narrative choice i think so yeah i do feel that the design could change a little bit maybe a little bit more exoskeletal and biomechanical looking at the space jockey from alien i always thought that there were some sort of dome over the space jockey which was in the original giga concept so i thought there would be some kind of dome over the head like a biological dome but you know i've never quite seen that you know in, in either fan interpretations or comic interpretations yeah that's an interesting point that you mentioned like the space jockey's environment itself and its spacecrafts are so biomechanical but in the few times we've actually seen the space jockeys they're usually not biomechanical themselves like the aliens have been depicted as yeah one thing i think i i, I could you know imagine being the reason for you know, the jockey looking that way is when you, we look at the face hugger, it's not very biomechanical. And when we look at this chest buster, it only has, you know, these kind of twin tubes running on, on the sides of it. So what I think is perhaps, you know, the technology that, that keeps it alive maybe alters its physical shape somehow. Maybe it's a, you know, protective kind of layer, nutrition layer, something like that. You know, they mention in Alien that the face hugger kind of replaces its skin with complex polysaccharides or something like that. It has a, as a, what was it, um, a habit of shedding its skin and replacing it with polarized silicon, something yeah. like that. Polarized silicon. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. That's it. I haven't seen Alien in a year. I apologize for the <laughs> blasphemy right now. Back in the 70s, there was a big thing about, well, will ET life be carbon-based or silicon-based? And I'm sure yeah. that it was to do with that debate that was going on in the 70s. They were trying to say, well, this they, there was a thought that most ET life would be silicon-based. So I think that's what O'Bannon was putting in there. Mm-hmm. So I thought perhaps, you know, this is not actually what all the jockeys look like. It, it is just an effect of, you know, that technology keeping it alive for 3 billion years or not. You know, we don't know. <laughs> Everything is so well lampshaded and so well, you know, blocked in within the story. You know, a lot of people tend to criticize Prometheus because we didn't need to learn more about the space jockeys. We didn't need to know this stuff. And there's me hunting down this comic to find out more about the space jockeys and we do this comic gives us information about the space jockeys but it doesn't give us everything yeah, you know it exactly. is, is very reserved with what it gives us it gives me enough to set off my imagination to make me go yep that is that is fucking lovecraftian it doesn't fundamentally alter our perception of them like Prometheus exactly. did. yeah it's kind of like predator 2 in a way you know Predator 2 expands on the lore without altering majorly uh, our perception of the predator and it, and it expands it in a positive way. So I feel like this comic does a similar thing with the space jockeys. 
I always say it's not that we didn't need to learn more about them. It's that we don't like what we learn about them. Yeah. That's the pro- that's the problem with Prometheus because it it fight it fights this comic as well. You know, this comic affected my take on the space jockeys and their history with the the, the universe and stuff like that. And this was the thing that we had for ten years, yeah, ten ten odd years before you know we had Prometheus come along and recontextualize everything. So you know, it was fighting this persisting interpretation that was all we had until Prometheus came along and took another take on it. So, you know, if you're one of those Prometheus fans who gets pissed off, you know, this comic's a little bit, um, I think, at fault for that um, <laughs> anger towards it. But it does it so well in this. And I think, yeah. again, that's that's a reason that people are so taken with this interpretation. And it's stuff that other franchises do as well. You know, it's not original to Alien. And what's that game I've never played that they do it in? Not Dead Space. What's the other one? Mass, Mass Effect. Effect. It's it's a whole thing in Mass Effect as well, isn't it? You know, this cyclical force that goes oh, around the cleansing Reapers. the galaxy. Yeah, the Reapers. So, you know, the whole take on their relationship between the space jockey and, and the aliens and stuff like that, you know, it's not original to this and that's not a negative either, but people just in fan, I guess, I guess longer term fans are more the fat kind of fans who would delve into the expanded universe appreciate this more. You say <laughs> it's it not more. original to it. I don't remember if, you know, how accurate the thing, you know, the 1982 movie is to the original short story. But at least in the movie version, um, you have the no- whole no- Norwegian camp business. And the space jockey in this is basically Norwegian camp in space, you know, which was also the case in Aliens, of course. Yeah, Hadley's Hope, yeah. So we are following like a rescue team in this that's been commissioned to find this group that this scientist cult group, whatever, sent out earlier and they have stopped transmitting. So that was kind of a, a cool angle with that. And like you said earlier, they discover this undercover android on the ship that was planted by Wayland Utani. And they have an interesting way of discovering it. They fly past this Wayland Utani outpost and they're like, mm-hmm. oh, he'll go haywire because of the signal here or something. And then he just blasts him, which was awfully convenient. <laughs> it's interesting from a narrative point of view to have something that would give him away, but it's so wishy-washy the way they justify it in the store. Uh, the short band frequencies cause a loop that sends them haywire. Yeah, it didn't. You'd think they'd have sorted that out. <laughs> yeah. But you know what? I, I, I like I like the intent behind it. Because again, it's like David mentioned earlier, you know, the whole conflict between... In this one, it's not so much corporations trying to fuck each other as it is, you know, science fundamentalists who are also hypocrites in their own way fighting the corporations. So, you know, the, the conflict between ideologies and uh, organizations, you know, is interesting, even if they don't quite handle the reveal of the spy the best way, in my opinion. Yeah. I will say, though, the search and rescue ship and... and- idea behind that it kind of reminded me of the movie event horizon not just in the search and rescue of this Mm -hmm. group that discovered something angle but also the way the ship travels it's like an experimental new drive that folds space so that they can instantaneously travel anywhere in the galaxy which again is like in event horizon there's a really cool creepy angle with that but in this i'm like "Eh, do we want that kind of advanced level human tech in the alien franchise I mean, it was exclusive to this G Holgar company as well, you know, these science obsessed people. And it was like, we're keeping this to ourselves. So, in it, I mean, Mark was smart about it in 
containing it you know that's one of the things that writers have to be good with in tying media is the ability to press that red button you know that big red button to reset things and i think it works well in here and i know you don't like to push it too far in terms of other feels but event horizon feels very much alien in a lot of ways oh, and i for think sure. yeah yeah I think the concept, Event Horizon would have come out by the time this came out, right? Wasn't that mid-90s? 1997. Yeah, 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 so that would have already come out by the time this had come out. Yep. So if that was one of those little nuggets that Mark was leaving in there to maybe play with with another Apocalypse series in the future, I'd have been all over that. I'd have been over a more Event Horizon alien kind of thing. Yeah, well, Event Horizon is basically alien meets Hellraiser. That works. Come on, let's have a bit of Hellraiser in our alien. Let's go to the space jockey dimensions. Yes. I've often said that the way it's described in Event Horizon is basically word for word what Bob Lazar, the guy who was the supposed whistleblower of Area 51, he said, that's how the captured ET hardware, that's how that works. And it was I found it interesting that it was repeated here. Because as you say, it is, it is very much they, when they're talking about bending space, although it was a little bit weird when they kept on that. There's literally a panel where they say, let's bend space. Yeah. And it felt a little time to bend. Is this space. a Marvel story? <laughs> Come on, every every ship captain and every pilot has to have a catchphrase. <laughs> it's warp time. <laughs> I just think with it. Alien, the long haul aspect of space travel is is part of its identity. Now, granted, that that, it's a different story and a different feel. I, I know. They had to explain why a craft hadn't... They had to explain why they had to hire this team and nobody else had bothered to get there before now. So they had to explain why they can get there in a shorter period of well, time. No, so it, it was, was that a, the people owned that ship. That was theirs, as yeah. in uh, G-Hole God. So it through wasn't anything to do with it. But, it, you know, it also, it furthers that other, because when we eventually find out where... Fuck, I forgot his Dr. name. Dr. Kaitel? Kaitel, yeah. When we find out where Kaitel is, he's gone beyond the rim. You know, this ship then offered him the, the ability to fuck off far past, you know, the outer rim, far past populated space. And yeah, they planted a, a relay communications array on the derelict they found to feed information to their science group as if they were still there when really they had explored yeah. out further hmm. which is great because again it's that it's that isolation that ancient history feel as well that we get from exploring the the unknown parts of the galaxy in these stories and yeah i was i was really on board that and using the particle drive to get there Yes, the equivalent of like a 19th century explorer going to find the lost city of gold and, oh, I found a treasure map and he's gone off to there, even though he was sent by, you know, the Spaniards to go for the lost city of gold. He's found another thing that gives him a clue to like Atlantis. It, it felt very much like that for me. And I, I like that. But I wish they'd have done a little more with that because it found like they were virtually in an identical kind of location as the one left from. Aesthetically speaking, yeah. Yeah, like there should have been something like, I went here because I found it in this data trove of other space jockey stuff, and that gave me information on my own. But they don't really explore it. They talk about finding that planet in like the, the ship's navigational stuff, you know? Yeah. 
where they go was this ship's last port of call from so from a, a, a like a world building point of view it's really interesting because it then shows that they were land they were planet based as well and we had this fucking subterranean kind of thing with the the spiral um stairs even that kind of reminded me prometheus of prometheus yeah because it starts as a very angular stone spiral down i think it goes further back because granted, I don't remember it as well, but there was a, a, a draft of Alien where it's rather than a derelict, it's the pyramid. A, it's the red city. No, not not even the the pyramid. Oh, it's the, the red. It's the red city, not the cylinder oh, one. Yes. The, the red city one isn't as well known, and I don't remember it as well either. Again, because it's not massively well known, and I think the only sort of stuff we J W Rinsler's book is probably the most we have of that being out there in the public but that that was known about you know there's there's artwork of that out there and i kind of got the feel of that red city vibe from the from the spiral staircase down there so i i think prometheus was doing what it does where it recycles the stuff from from older alien yeah, stuff and i think that's where that that came from as well so uh, everybody keeps trying to talk about it so i'm gonna let you the aliens the interpretation of the aliens in this So I love the way the aliens are realized in this comic. This came out in 99, so two years after 97, which is where Alien Resurrection came out. This was a comic after Resurrection. Resurrection was the last movie. Uh, The aliens in this are the ADI Resurrection design Mm -hmm. hybridized with Big Chap. They are Big Chap meets ADI's aliens, which you wouldn't think that would work because of how divergent those two designs are, but it does. It works so well. They are biomechanical ADI Resurrection aliens. They have the digitigrade legs. And they're great. And the artist realizes their movements really well. Like they're not static. They're dynamic in their movements. Even the close-up shots of the Xenomorphs where it just focuses on their their mouth or their claws, like it just really works so well in this comic. So it's right up there with the jockey environments as to why you'd want to check this out. It's one of the best depictions of the Xenomorphs I think we've seen in comics. And they square out the jaw again, don't they, in this? So it's very big chap in, in facial appearances, I think. I agree with you. I think it is a brilliant blending of of ADI's alien and Giga's alien. But I'm going to pass it off to David here because I feel like he's very eager to talk about this interpretation. So go ahead. <laughs> so I do agree with with Adam, what what Adam says that you know it's a kind of you know halfway point between the big chap being one extreme and the alien resurrection alien being another, and so you have a gra- gradient of it, and this is somewhere in between. I feel like they highlighted some of the details that already were on the resurrection aliens, like those tubes on the abdominal area. I also think there's some inconsistency in the drawings sometimes because in some of the illustrations, the back of the head looks like big chaps, whereas in others, it's flat bottomed like the resurrection aliens. I don't know why it's that. Maybe they wanted to, you know, kind of take liberty with it. You know, do one panel like this, another panel like this. We could because they couldn't decide upon it. I don't know. It's, it's probably more reference, I think, going off there. We've, we've complimented Doug, but I think he's very obviously one of those that looks at the recent stuff. More for reference, uh, the same thing happened with Thicker Than Blood. You know, his alien in that was the isolation alien because that's the most recent. Well, no, I suppose not. I suppose not with Covenant, actually. They might be talking bullshit there. I may be bullshitting. Sorry, go ahead, David. Just <laughs> crack, on, crack on with it. Okay. Uh, one thing I, I, I think that could have been handled better maybe are the, you know, the, the hands and the feet because they look very beast-like. They have these tick claws 
that I think could have been handled better, you know, a little bit more gigrish, considering how well they, you know, they reproduced the giga aesthetic for, for the setting. And I might be alone in this, but I love the space jockey alien design. It's so, uh, it's kind of a, I don't know, ancestor to the alien it looks like, you know, uh, kind of a prehistoric alien, you know, it looks so awesome. I like that they didn't go crazy with the space jockey influence. It was high, so it's very fucking imposing, you know, again, lending a feel to what you were just saying, you know, this prehistoric kind of thing. It gives it this dinosaur feel without being dinosaur in a negative kind of, you know, how people tend to throw out, it looks like a fucking dinosaur as, as a negative in terms of design aesthetic. I think it feels like a dinosaur in, in what you're saying there, you know, prehistoric wise, but it's just a simple, it's just a simple nubbin. Yeah. They don't have a big trunk emulation or anything. It's just a it's little almost a beat. Needs... There, There is a little, one nice detail. Yeah. There is a little bit of a trunk. If you look close enough. That, that little bit is such reserved design with what Doug was doing. And I think it's brilliant. I think it's brilliant that they were so subtle and so minimal with it and not going full kenner yeah i mean and it being so large i mean it's it just makes sense because you know an alien coming out of a human post is slightly bigger than uh than a human and you know the space jockey we see in the comic is fairly large so it only makes sense that the alien would be larger than that not to mention what we said before which is, you know, maybe the technology that kept it alive had something to do with that, with the development of the alien. And also maybe the alien DNA interacts differently with how the alien walks when it, you know, borrows host traits. And I also like that, you know, it has this kind of recurring holes in the design on the tail. It looks kind of like a, you know, again, an ancestor to the alien, like a dinosaur to a bird. So that I very much enjoy. I wish we we got to see more of it. it. It was still alive. Yeah, exactly. I do like that, you know, we barely escape it in the story. We don't kill it. We don't do anything. There's no, like, climactic battle with the uh, the jockey alien. They're just trying to escape, essentially. Yeah, it's such an overwhelming force. To? It's big. You know? <laughs> yeah. And, and, it, and I feel like it's respectful to how the original movie treated the alien, also aliens, because in Alien and Aliens, you never really kill the evil at last. You just banish it or you just escape yes. from it. You exile it like in fairy tales. I don't think we see any aliens die in this, um, other than what the um, the space jockey alien kills. Yeah, we don't see any of them die, actually. There's one that falls through the floor when they but blast But we don't see them. him dying. Yeah, no, we don't see it dying. That was one of the um, flaws in this because they're literally shooting with pulse rifles and they're aiming them right at the creature, but somehow they're just hitting the floor. They do comment on how the rifles don't walk on them. Yeah, but it, they should have done. <laughs> they didn't. I don't think that she, she misses because the alien's so quick. One of them's running right towards a character and aiming at the alien, but it's just hitting the floor for some reason. Well, you, again, you've got to remember these aren't fucking military. No, but they're hitting the floor. What I'm saying is it's not in line with where the gun's pointing. It's just hitting the floor for some reason. You just have to shrug your, your yeah. shoulders at that one. You're I mean, that's a, single, those... that's a single page at the end of the day as well. You know, this isn't a Yeah, but when a character's literally saying rifles aren't going to do anything, and I'm thinking... I'm sure they don't say that. They would have. 
Yeah, there's a point where they say rifles aren't do they assault rifles or pulse rifles, they aren't doing anything. They're where, where was that? Yeah, them. I don't remember that. And they're getting surrounded in a circle before the cult leader guy turns up. I think it's that panel. There's right? there's nothing there. Oh god, oh god, get behind me. There's a panel where one of them says rifles are useless. There's one where it says the rifles aren't going to stop them. Is yeah. that what you're talking about? Might have yeah, been that. Yeah. That's the line. So I'm thinking they they should be doing something. And when you're saying we didn't see any aliens get killed, it should have been just while I'm looking at that page, that panel of the gas freezing on the aliens' face. No, that's what I pointed <laughs> out. That's so dodgy. No, no, I, I don't mean the penis gun. I just mean the <laughs> the the money shot of the gas on the aliens' face when it cracks open the guy's helmet. This comic is just full of gorgeous money shots. Yeah. You know, the the face hugger jumping out on that was nice. On yeah. that guy. And Eric mentioned the chestburster earlier. It was a great chestburster. I can't remember a chestburster depiction in a comic looking as good mm. as as in here. I've got a feeling that might be traced from the original Kane one, because it looks very similar, but it's really good either way. I think it's um we mentioned how the artists referenced it you know, material from the movies or the drawings. And I feel like that panel is an exact replica, almost exact replica of a picture from Alien. Yeah. A backstage shot of the chess poster, which looks exactly it's the very same. very similar. I do yeah. have it on my hard drive if you want it. In terms, I mean, it doesn't feel as, you know, we talk about this when we talk about the Marvel stuff. Yeah. There's a difference between traced and referenced. And even if you are heavily referencing something here and there, it's clear that the aliens still have dynamic movements in this. Like they don't look yeah. static. They don't look like drawn exactly, you know, even yeah, if this yeah. is heavily referenced. Now you'd have to put it in Photoshop to see, because we didn't notice a lot of this stuff until recent years, until like the later Dark Horse years in Marvel where it's become more egregious. Very obvious. Yeah. But it still happened. It even happened in Thicker Than Blood. We went back and looked and found the Predator ship. So I feel like as long as it can be done well, there's so yeah. many original elements in this that are like completely original. Like the Giger environments, like th that's yeah. completely original. Like the jockey alien and the way these aliens, even though they, they look referenced from the resurrection aliens with biomechanical elements, they're not traced. Like at least yeah. they don't appear to be traced right off the bat which is a good thing. If it's like obvious, like, oh, I've seen this before. This is a well-known alien image. That's where you have problems. Yeah, I wasn't criticizing it, of course. By the way, Aaron, could you go real quick, uh, the panel where they find Jellico and in, this, in the nest? Because that's my favorite panel. And the, the mural. Yeah. I loved seeing the mural. Oh, the one where it's kind of like the religious icon jockey. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That looks amazing. It looks so kind of godlike. And it's fantastic. The lighting, the lighting coming from above, and the jockey being in this kind of position with the arms crossed over it, kind of, a, kind of like a pharaoh. It looks like the um, there's a, a Mexican sort of I forget her name, but she's like the Lady of Death sort of thing, and it's it looked like that because it's grim reaperish with a skeletal yeah, aesthetic, yeah. and and it's reminiscent of you know Giga's mural as well, not in terms of. Yeah what's actually on there but the concept you know of this big space jockey thing and again it's something we would have known about as well and i, I like seeing that kind of grandiose self-importance i'm glad that carried over into the engineers as we got them in the films yeah, yeah that david that is a brilliant fucking panel you're quite right and the, the space jockey ruins in this i know adam's talked about it david's talked about it i love it i love that first panel where clytel you know shows through the the underground city and this sprawling sort of 
I love the phrase necropolis. I love necropolis yeah. as, as a name for things. You know, and, and he shows her that the space jockey necropolis and you have Giga's boob egg silo in there and you have all this biomechanical detailing of, of the other environments. Those are the kind of pages that when I first got hold of this comic, I would just sit and fucking look at yep. to try and yeah. absorb whatever detail was in there. And, you know, what I find interesting is Giko did delve into kind of almost a mockery of religious imagery in many of his paintings. You know, the, the one with um, Satan using Jesus on a cross <laughs> as a swing. And Giga was also involved in a, in a project that ne- never came to be, which was called Dead Star. And it was a script from Willem Malone, who also directed Titan Find Creature. You know, the 1985 movie, which is, you know, one of the more successful structure-wise uh, alien ripoffs. And they had all these concepts of, you know, Satan coming out of this portal in space. It was very, very interesting. Too bad it never came out. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I do like that they kept this kind of alternate religion, mockery of religion, you know, which was also an element in Lovecraft, basically. Yeah. Now that we've kind of circled back to it, it's just one of the main reasons we love this comic, I think, or at least appreciate this comic for this is just these strong Giger-esque jockey or engineer environments. I don't think it was done this well again until Aliens Fireteam Elite, honestly. You didn't like it in AVP Firestone? Well, yeah, I guess it was I guess it was all right in Fire and Stone, but seeing it like this well realized, like wow, just like blow you away with with how cool it looks i don't remember it being quite that good in fire and stone but i do in aliens fire team elite i think they really mm. brought back the first the reveals yeah yeah i mean imagine seeing that panel on the big screen imagine that oh, reveal oh. you know that pan up to this sprawling endless fucking giga city out of fucking well, yeah. the, the best the, the thing i always remembered about this one was that the way it starts out because it almost subverts those expectations you see this glorious gigaresque thing and you think it's the original derelict and it's literally someone carting out the last of the eggs and they're leaving it empty it's a great way to do that but i mean this goes back to the the conversation about the space jockey where he is this sort of bloaty flesh thing but that's perfectly valid interpretation. I remember back in the 90s saying on debates about it, well, how do you know if the original derelict was a ship? Because we didn't know if it was a ship back then. But if it was a ship and if it was biomechanical, if it was literally alive, how do we know that wasn't just the skeleton and all the flesh had rotted away? Maybe it looked completely different when the ship itself was alive. And this goes into, I must say about the space, well, the alien aesthetics. I really like, except for the, the feet do look a bit chunky, I really like how the artist has done them. He does much better stuff in Thicker Than Blood. But the thing, I think it must be pointed out, what I felt was lacking in the aliens was, and this might be more of a colouring issue, The all these aliens look dry. None of them had that resin-like glistening they didn't look reflective. They looked bone dry. And when the space jockey alien came along, to me, it looked very, it's weird because this is a drawing and they're not actual suits, but it looked very rubbery. And I think they were trying to go back to the flesh of the space jockey, but even the tail just looked like one big rubber bendy tube. There was no exoskeletal segmentation in it. 
And I'm sure they were trying to go back to that space jockey, bloated, sort of octopus washed up on a beach look. <laughs> it just didn't work to me. It looked dry and it looked rubbery. But you go back to the set design, the set design is perfect. And it's a lot of it is to do with like Dennis Bouvet. Dennis Bouvet has got a beautiful way of showing lighting on things. And this, this artist has a great way of playing with shadows because he doesn't just do the architecture, but he's got how light interplays with the architecture. You've got shadows hanging in just the right way so that when characters like there's one character who shoots a gun and there's another one say no you're seeing things you can actually believe that they are seeing tricks of light because the set design and the lighting on this comic is that well done you can really believe characters will be seeing tricks of the light and the story doesn't focus on that but because of how beautifully well realized it is you you just get this sense there could be shadows moving on the wall. And it's, it's just how the lighting works. And it's just this, it's very rare that you get this feeling of, like Aaron says, sometimes you go back to it every so often because it, it's like going through a little magical playground because you get this Ridley Scott-esque way of how the lighting played with it. It made the environment come alive and the environment is almost its own character in this story, which I love. It's just, yeah, you, 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 when we talked about the space jockey and like Hadley's Hope with a similar thing, the space jockey has to be the biggest cocktease in science fiction <laughs> until Prometheus. And the thing with Prometheus is there's a valid argument, which we often toss around, that it didn't respect the source material in this one, it respects the source material because everything done with the space jockey, everything done with the architecture, it doesn't take liberties. Everything you imagined could have and would have maybe happened before it crashed on LV426. This preserves it all. All of your fantasies are not messed with. It's just saying, here's a civilization. This wasn't just one. This is civilizations of beings. Whatever you imagined, we're not touching it. But here's your, we're taking you back. We're giving you those feelings you had when you saw that reveal of the skeletal fossilized thing. It's that writ large. When Cain goes down into the egg chamber and you see that hint, you see the egg chamber, the cavern, it, it turns around. You see light goes around. What's down there? We never find out. And this comic brings those feelings back. It shows you a hint of what could have been around that corner. It could have been that thing with the space jockey crossing itself. All of this feels like it fits. It's the spiritual successor set design-wise, and I, I can't give it enough praise. But as you said, it is still hints of things. It's not taking yeah. away too much of the mystery. It's, and it's allowing your imagination yeah. to still explore the space jockey. The other thing this does really well, which wasn't really an issue until Prometheus, almost every shot with a space jockey, be it the remains of them, or especially the thing the bloated one actually does well, is show you how massive those things are compared to a human being. And when they say these things are giants... As was often said in the original script for Prometheus, which was taken out a lot, but they say these were giants. Whenever you see the space jockeys, the, the size of them reinforces that part of the narrative, and you really do feel these things are massive. And when you go back to Prometheus now, and you're thinking, they really did not do justice I to think the size. that line was still in Prometheus, wasn't it? They said they were giants. 
I think. There might have been one or two, but this one reinforces it a lot more. I will point out, though, have any of you met Ian White? No. He is a giant. Yeah, he is. So when you, when you, when you, actually, when you actually get to meet an engineer in person, they're fucking massive. <laughs> So, you know, we, we've sort of said that the characters weren't the greatest, but what did you guys think about... Um, well, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm more interested in Clytel. I'm always more interested in the bad guys. So what did you guys think about... I keep I keep wanting to call him Harvey. Clytel, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I said earlier. What, what, what did you guys think about Clytel? What did you think about the bad guy in this? Probably the most interesting character in the comic, I thought, because he had set up this little mini cult group with this expeditionary team he had gone out with. But at the same time, at the end, he reveals that he knew he was bullshitting them and he was just yeah. doing it for his own ends to research a way that humans could coexist with the aliens because he saw the aliens as this cleansing fire that had destroyed this ancient race that was much more powerful than us. So we would eventually be screwed when they found our way back to Earth. So he's saying we need to retreat back to Earth and find a way to coexist with the aliens. And that's what I'm trying to do. And his research plays into elements we've seen in stories since this with like the pheromones the pheromone stuff pre preceded this nightmare asylum no not nightmare asylum first showed up in hive i believe okay and then um, stronghold. In alien war so in London. they have like um <laughs> yeah you you pointed that out the other day didn't you <laughs> it's, it's like a gas grenade vaccine dose that essentially makes the aliens not hostile to you then and it was based on the dna of an infected person as well so the, the whole research angle and how he had manipulated these people he was with to believe in them as some sort of rebirth. And, and that's kind of what I was thinking of midway through the comic. I was like, well, if he's like with these guys in this craziness, why isn't he anxious to like become reborn himself? And then you find out it's just, oh, I needed to use them for my experiments. And so I had them believe in this like a, a religion. I actually find the metaphysics kind of view of that interesting some of the other comics and some of the other stories have played with it and you know i wouldn't believe it for a second in my own point of view but to, to see it played within in the stories is very interesting and I, i'm kind of bummed out that he didn't really think that but as a character i like i find him relatively complex in what he's doing and very self-aware and i really like that because i don't think we tend to get you know, a lot of people will call out Church as being one of the more interesting ones, but he does sort of go off, off the deep end at the end of the comic and become quite cliche, I guess. But the, the self-awareness of, of Kaitel in this one is one I really like. I do I do like his... Because he's not necessarily... What he's doing, his end game is for, you know, is for... The ends justify the means. Yeah, the ends justify the means. So I like those kind of bad guys and I, and I thought he was really interested in his self-awareness of, you know, what I did was horrible, but I had to do it for everybody else. And I like that. I, he really works for me in this. I think he's probably one of my more favourite villains from, from any of the comics. Perhaps not quite up there as much as Suddler, but he's still one of the ones I find I find very interesting, very up there. And it does kind of play with the cult angle as well in this one a little bit, which we saw in previous comics as well. Yeah, I, I guess. I mean, yeah. to a lesser extent, but it's still there. It's there, yeah. He reminded me, a, he was a better delivery for this kind of theme than David is in the films, primarily because he is a human. So he has human flaws. He's a lot more believable. He, remind, he made me think, actually, if we cast our minds back to the first book one, 
story, he felt like a fleshed out version of Salvajay, the original cult leader. Like it is, if you took Salvajay and you uh, you took some effort to give him some backstory and meaning to himself, this is a lot like that character. Where it fell down was his theory, because as I said. Aliens can't go anywhere. They need starships. If they haven't got them and they're not going to do well against a competent security team, they're not going to take over the galaxy. That's the problem with that. But as was pointed out earlier, Aaron, you said it, um, it did mythologically, it did give me those Mass Effect vibes. And you had with the Reapers, they've got a means of going from planet to planet. But it still gave me that feeling and the way this character was explaining himself. He had that what makes a good villain, which is they believe in it. He even points out, he says, I'm damned. He acknowledges he did some grotesque. In fact, he hints that he did more than anyone has discovered, which gave it, again, more of a David-esque feel. But he's not wallowing in it like David. He's not moustache twirling, which makes it so much more plausible. He's saying he knows he's done this that stuff, but it was necessary. I had to do it. We're not given really a sense of why that was, what he's been doing so many years. He hints at it. I think the writers just wanted to give us an excuse of, you know, there's a guy who's basically been shipwrecked on this island and he's doing Dr. Moreau stuff. But it would have been nice if there was more, we went into what was necessary. But for what we're given, it comes across like someone who has talked to themselves into this. He feels he needs to do this. What didn't work so well for me was the cult member who says, oh, I've been promised, I know what I'm in for, I know what these face suckers do, I need this salvation, I want it to happen to me. And I was thinking, after all this, really? You still believe this? That didn't quite work for me. But the cult leader, Keitel, he feels like someone who's bullshitted himself into a corner. And he knows he's damned. The part where he says, you have to be my prophet, was a bit over the top. But as someone who believes in themselves, and at one point he says, I thought you didn't understand but you actually do understand. It's that nice little moment where a villain acknowledges they were wrong, but they still feel their plan was, it had to go this way. Sorry, guys, I had to fuck up because I fucked up. <laughs> it felt like a, a flawed human character. And those are the best villains when it's a mm -hmm. flawed yeah. character. And this had that. It was still a bit one-dimensional, but, I mean, it's that kind of character where you've only got so long to spend on him. And I, as I said, I thought he served the same role as David Ake came to in Covenant, but he served it better. And you just mentioned the cultist guy. No, not cultist. The believer from this comic. And I just want to point out that there's a thing I love to see with those kind of characters who are purposefully going to get infected. You know, they know what they're in for. They want it. It's their promised gift. And there's a certain thing I absolutely fucking love when writers, when artists do this. It's when the face hugger jumps out of the mid-dialogue. <laughs> I love to see them cut off mid-speech with how much they want this. And I was I, I love seeing it in this one. And again, it's a, it's a gorgeous panel from Doug Wheatley. It rams home the reality of the situation. We haven't mentioned the colorist because we are evil bastards who don't properly credit and everybody. But Chris Chukri coloured this one. And we were talking off the air, or Adam and I were, before you two showed up about Rain Burrito being a better colorist to be paired up with Doug in uh, Thicker Than Blood. 
But Chris in this is fantastic as well. You know, he compliments Doug's pencil work in this very well because there's a lot of pencil. You know, I don't think I don't think there's any ink in this. Yeah. It's purely it pencil. Feels lighter than thicker than blood. And Chris's digital art in this because it wasn't traditional either. It was it was pencil Doug's pencils, and then Chris did it digitally. And it doesn't look it at all. I don't think this feels like a digital color. It doesn't have any of the feel of you know the more modern stuff where we do see the digital color and all that awful fucking recolor of book one. It's got a nicely subdued color palette as well. Really nice blues as well. You know, aliens tend, at least older, tended to go very heavy blacks, but we get a lot of blues in this. We get a lot of shadow play in this. And even the stuff that you wouldn't, you know, like the the panel with the alien. I I often, uh, not the alien, the face hugger that we were just talking about, I often tend to criticize those panels where it's just pure color in the background and you don't get any details and it looks boring. But like that panel, you know, with the orange background and stuff like that, works with and, and there's some with them with a simple white background as well where i'm like this is the colorist and the artist knowing what to put attention onto and to make it effective and to draw your eyes and yeah chris chris and doug in this one were a fantastic team rain burrito may have been a little bit better but that is again because i like the texturing of rain's work the way they give their color a, a, a texture with some like dotted patterns and stuff like that that i like personally but doug and chris in this perfect team so we still haven't talked about our main character through we haven't even mentioned our main character see that's what i mean but Adam, it's like when we when we spoke to Ian in the last episode, you know, I said to him so much of the comics are the one with that is how you sum up the comics. This one is the one with the space jockey. And I tend to forgive those elements perhaps not being as interesting or Yeah. That's a fair point. Like, because... This is the one with the space jockey, the one with the owl. You know, you guys were questioning the owl, but the one with the owl, it's the things that make them stand out. We're going with the friends naming strategy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and through isn't massively interesting, I will agree, but I never found it a detriment to the comic because, again, I'm more invested in the narrative, in finding out what's happening with, with Clytel, in finding out what the space jockey stuff is that I don't really care about Throop and I didn't it's probably wrong to say in a story but I tend to give the comics a bit more leeway in that aspect yeah Yeah, in some comics it is more about the concept again I think you can do a balance well and I I thought she was all right it was an interesting opening scene with her getting that extra information from the guy from the science group to Lurin they're in like this snowy forest which that honestly kind of reminded me of prometheus as well when they have the meeting with uh man i'm forgetting everybody's name today blonde lady vickers vickers right they have the meeting with vickers in her pod and you have this screen behind her that shows all these different environments and one of them is this snowy forest and i was like oh yeah kind of like prometheus there but yeah through it was a standard protagonist did the job you know it's okay but definitely not what the comics remembered for, no. And if you were to say, what's the alien comic with the space jockey? I wouldn't be like, which one? I would know it's this one. This is the alien comic that deals with the space jockey. I, I'd be confused as to whether it's this or the one where they met on the space jockey ship with the diplomacy thing, because that's that's the one I remember from my youth, my high school. With the space jockey dressed in all those kind of ropes. Yeah, when they launched the nuclear missiles, yeah. He knows karate, man. Does yeah, <laughs> punched. Well, look, if if a bunch of synthetics are trying to blow you up with a new, you know, know, you're gonna you're gonna give them some fisticuffs. 
you are. That was a bit silly. You know, about the main character uh, we just mentioned, Troop, I do like how human she feels despite, you know, the short time spent with her in the comic. You know, she opposes, you know, the, the mission going a different route, you know. She says, I signed on for a rescue mission, not for this. And uh, one funny thing is all the surviving characters are girls, you know. You had the two girls, Troop and Jellico, and you had the android girl. I forgot the name of her. I think that one's Demos. Mm, yeah, I think. They had three androids on the ship, didn't they? Three, yeah. There was Ball, the other one, uh, who's shot at the beginning, and the girl. There's four. The bearded one that got grabbed by the alien. Oh, yeah. They had some interesting names of this, but I did think Bowl was a little on the nose because the one character who's got like a demonic name, it's literally a name of a demon, I think. I yeah. thought, I wonder if evil is going to surface in this character. And yeah, literally evil worked through this character in a very literal way. I thought, yep, that's going to be the demonic character name. They, they were all ancient gods. <laughs> I, very, I very much liked how they illustrated Ball. You know, with the red light, you know, the shadows, the shadow play. And the church is kind of like a Frankenstein reference, which I also feel is kind of there in in the cultists, you know? It, it kind of yeah. moves like Igo because it's kind of hunched. He, he's very much like a cultist out of Warhammer. With those, they do sort of, all he was missing was a cloak and some sort of servitor arms moving around. He was very much like a chaos cult member. So, anybody got anything else they want to bring up about the comic? Yeah, one thing. It's a great fucking comic. Is what it is it. a great <laughs> fucking comic. So, actually, so I posted in our Facebook group that we were talking about this comic tonight and just sort of invited some comments from the people on the group. So, uh, Harold Siebert was, you know, together with Alien Genocide and Berserk, and the story from this series was super good. It fits so perfectly into canon. The story was very perfect for a sci-fi series or a movie. It's a shame that the studios didn't take on the Dark Horse comics timeline. Wolf Paul Daniel, you know, he says some of the best art is in this one. Eric Fisher, absolutely fantastic series. Love their take on the space jockey, and the art was fantastic. Leon Ortega Valdez is saying, Out of all the comics, this series is effectively my favourite out of all of them. Next to Nightmare Asylum and Dead Orbit. The art, the concept, fantastic. And even, you know, like I mentioned earlier, I like to go back and read the columns. I like to read what people were saying about those things at the time. And the writings for this one were just as glowing. You know, everybody was complimenting the take, the narrative, where the story was going. And Doug and Chris's artwork, you know, it's very much a loved comic. And even though I didn't 10 out of 10 it, I don't think there's many. Is there any comics I would 10 out of 10? Maybe Nightmare Asylum, but that's purely off of the strength of Bouvet's artwork. You know, as far as the comics go, this is one of the best of the Alien comics. It should also so be said that, like you said, you don't really see any alien deaths. As I said earlier, this is an example of a comic which has got a good reputation and there's hardly any real horror in it, which for an Alien comic series, I get the feeling is rare for the fandom to universally, because a lot of the time fandom clusters run, oh, the money shots of all the deaths and that. This is one of those examples of an alien comic which scores most of its points by examining, digs into the goldmine of the Lovecraftian, the cosmic angle to the alien, the mystery of what the first film largely set up. 
if you're looking for horror, this is probably not a, a comic you would go to, I would say, but you go to this for the, the story value. And I think yeah. this is an example of you can make a decent alien film without needing splatter gore over the place or needing to go as deep as Labyrinth did with the, you know, all the stuff that delved into. Although, to be fair, that is a standout part of Labyrinth, but it is. Yeah, we still get plenty of synthetic gore as well in this one. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Which is some, again, some great panels. There's one panel, there's one panel of the alien with, you know, the synthetic blood splattered over his face. I love that panel. It's more chest bursters then, and the chest bursters and the face huggers are beautifully realized. But if you're looking for like, alien on human death there's not much of that there's not much in terms of horror tension wise but you read it for the story that's what if you're gonna look don't go into this for i'm gonna watch a a horror story with aliens it's not that kind of alien comic and again it's it's one of the things i always say you know alien and predator are very versatile the films show it I mean, Alien and Aliens is a perfect example of the material working in entirely different genres. And the comics don't always, but they're also great examples of that working as well. I think we're all tapped out. Okay. So, you know, I hate doing this. So, Adam, you can do it. Socials, sure. pour us out, man. If you'd like to visit us on our website, it's avpgalaxy.net, where we have reviews, editorial pieces, interviews, and you can also talk to other fans on our long running forum. If you'd like to find us, we are on all the major social channels, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube. If you search AVP Galaxy or Alien vs. Predator Galaxy, you're sure to find us. And actually, there was one something I wanted to mention before we signed off. Mark Schultz, actually, I just wanted to shout out some of the other things he'd worked on, he'd written. And also the fact that he did the covers for the series as well, for the singles. Yeah, gorgeous covers. Gorgeous covers. Gorgeous. He also wrote Aliens Havoc, which is a crazy one where... It's a different artist like every other page, basically. He wrote the sequel that Adam mentioned, um, which was Once in a Lifetime. He wrote Predator Hell and Hot Water, which was actually the first Predator comic I ever brought, so there's more sentimentality there. Um, He wrote AVP Chain to Life and Death, which I don't remember. He wrote Superman and Batman versus Aliens and Predator, which is actually one of the stronger DC crossovers. But he also has a fucking stinker in his credits, which is uh, Aliens versus Predator versus Terminator. (laughs) That's the worse i still still have never read that one it's a shame because it it is worth keeping in mind that i think that is the only comic which actually tried to continue the adventures of ripley eight and actually gave her an end there's only there's only two pieces in the eu that continue with ripley and that is that comic and there's a novel called aliens original sin yeah but comic wise yeah Yeah, but comic wise i'll tell you what would be a 10 out of 10 is the original avp comic with that recoloration they did for the first issue they did the whole comic yeah with that recolor that that would be a 10 out of 10 and Mark is also the one who invented the the name Linguafoida Acheronsis. Yes. So that 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 is his uh, invention, and that is used exclusively in his stories, including Alien versus Predator versus Terminator. As a scientific name for the alien, which you would get yeah. a later one in Internectivus Raptus. Internectivus Raptus. I think it's like two or three. It's just those two. It's just those two. I like it. Linga further better. I don't like either. <laughs> <laughs> I hate both of them.
Just call it the alien. <laughs> I like how Linga further literally translates to foul tongue of the Acheron, which is like, you know, it, it references the main thing about the alien, you know, mm. the thing people remember. Yeah, you just like XX121, don't you, Aaron? I, I do. I just like the idea that Xenomorph is some generic term for aliens. Yes. And that there's a big catalog, and this one is just XX121. The only thing I've got on it, it should be like five thousand hundreds and something because it should be that many they've discovered up until that well that that's why that's why we've got the alphabet as well xx defines something else so this this is a a bipedal yeah Yeah. it's an unknown unknown yeah so nerds being nerds talking about nerdy things (laughs) love it (laughs) that's what we do it is so we also like to throw out our personal channels as well here so if you would like to follow me personally on Twitter, you can find me at underscore Corporal Hicks. Adam Hoyer Photography. If you'd like to follow me personally on Twitter and Instagram, it's at Ridgetop21. I also have some virtual photography with Alien and Predator stuff, and that's at Ridgetop Virtual Photography on Instagram. And David has a fucking fantastic blog <laughs> that he is now also going to tell you about. My blog is monsterlegacy.net. It is a collection of historiographical articles and retrospectives about, you know, the creation of the most popular movie monsters. You have a wide array of galleries and things like that. And you can also find it on Facebook, where I have a page and a group, and on Instagram, and that's it. And your website is monsterlegacy.net? Net. Net, yeah. There's a lot of really good in-depth articles on there, so definitely check that out. Ten years in the making. And still going. So my next one is about the dogs in Ghostbusters, the new one. Terror dogs, yay. Because, you know, there's a whole lot of comparisons to be made. Definitely check that out if you haven't, and especially if you're into other monsters, Yeah, as, as it says on the title. I think it's fair to say it's right up there with the Strange Shapes blog, if you're into that side of thing, or just into mm-hmm. the history of Hollywood, even. Yeah. That is a, it's a great resource site, it really is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and another, another shout-out to Alien Explorations, D.O.G. Alien Research Blog run by my my good friend Dominic Cooksa. And Strange mm-hmm. Shapes is run by Johnny Kennedy, another good friend of mine. And he's Valquin on our forums. So shout out he to the, those two awesome guys for, you know, finding out the deepest lore of the behind-the-scenes stories of our favorite movies. You know, I actually randomly ran into him in London, Dominic. Yeah, Dominic is a good guy. Yeah, to just just on the tube, I ran into him. I'd met him once before when we we, we I think we both filmed something with Andrew David Clark for a, a fan documentary he was working on, and then I was just coming back from some event in London and ran into Dominic on the tube. I was like, Ah, how you doing? How did you know it was him? Did he have the pyramid? I met him before. He had the pyramid. Oh. Yes, <laughs> the pyramid is fantastic. Yeah, love that. Is is a is a great chap, and Alien Exploration is a, a great blog as well. And Eric, we don't even fucking bother with. I'm getting on that tonight because I did change the name of the thing last week and I had a... Fucking no. <laughs> that, took, that took you, what, four years to do? Oh, no. I'm, I'm doing and that we, tonight. We say yeah. Adam's always late. Come on, bro. I know. We finally did it, everybody. You've got your alien apocalypse destroying angels episode. And you know what? I've been looking forward to this ever since we. I just went, fuck it. That's what we're doing. I've been really looking forward to it because last year <laughs> we were so negative about a lot of the releases and Marvel's bummed us the fuck out lately. So to go into a story that I love so much was 
really really nice and i've really enjoyed this episode so thank you guys and uh, i hope everybody out there has enjoyed this one and we'll see you on the next episode this has been aaron percival adam zeller eric adams david sword signing off Thank you.